I have to confess, it has been a long time since I have preached in shorts. I feel like I'm a pastor who's about to organize a youth lock-in at the gym, so. I am dressed like this because we participated in the Hunger Walk this morning, uh, which we'll talk about, and actually has a lot to do with what ordinary time is. And if you're like me, before this week, I had a question in my mind as I was preparing this sermon. What is ordinary time? Because we have started following the liturgical calendar and lectionary, and the seventh and final season of the Christian year is ordinary time. And I had no idea what it was, even up until uh, Wednesday. And so I want to tell you what I've learned about ordinary time and talking to mentors and talking to friends and doing some research, because I have found that this season is something worth paying attention to, and I am excited about celebrating it with all of you for the next six months. So let's begin about 2,000 years ago when all of Christianity began. There was the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that happened 2,000 years ago. Now, the resurrection is commemorated through Easter, and what most Christians don't know is that after Easter, Jesus walked around on earth for another 50 days, according to our tradition. At the end of those 50 days, Jesus then ascended up into heaven, and while he ascended up into heaven, shortly thereafter, tongues of fire came flaming down on the ground, on people's foreheads even, in a ceremony or in a time, a historical event in Christianity called Pentecost, which we talked about last week. This is considered the great sending out and the birthday of the church. Now, another thing that most Christians don't know is that here in the early days of the church, Christians didn't sit around and read the Bible to each other because there was no Bible. The church existed without a Bible. Instead, the primary way that Christians spoke about and experienced the Christian religion was through the bread and the cup, which was the sacrament of communion. And so early Christians would sit around, they would break bread, they would drink wine or grape juice, whatever your preference is, and they would talk with one another about who Jesus was and how their lives were impacted by him. And this happened on a weekly and often daily basis for early Christians. But there was one day that became a holiday very early on within the Christian tradition, and that was the day of Easter. This was the first celebration that we can tell of in early Christian history that they started to celebrate. It was sometime around the first century that Christians started marking Easter and said like, you know what, once Easter happens, there will be 50 days of celebration because we want to make this a whole season. This gave way to the second most important holiday in the early church, which was the holiday of Pentecost remembering the tongues of fire that descended and that was supposed to represent the Holy Spirit. Now, what I did not know before this week was there was a third holiday that came along shortly thereafter, and I would have assumed that it would be Christmas, but it was not. The third most important holiday in the early Christian church was the holiday of Epiphany, which takes place on January 6th. And even though some people like to riot on January 6th, let's remember that this was there long before that riot occurred, right? Now, the Epiphany 
that took place there was a commemoration of all the beginning elements of each gospel. So it was a commemoration of the baptism that's told in Mark's gospel, the birth of Jesus that's told in Luke's gospel. It's a commemoration of Jesus' first miracle in John's gospel, and it's a commemoration of the Magi visiting Jesus in Matthew's gospel. So it's viewed as like the beginning of Christ's ministry And while the birth of Jesus, as we talk about as Christmas today, was part of it, it was one of the four elements that Christians celebrated. Now, some centuries passed here before they started adding more holidays and more seasons to their Christian calendar. And these centuries are important because what happened is Christians started looking around and started saying to themselves, I don't think Jesus is coming back in our lifetime. Our ancestors told us that Jesus would be back by now. Jesus has taken a long time. And so the season that is meant to commemorate Jesus' delay and return is Lent. And Lent is often viewed as a season of penance or repentance or asking for forgiveness. Now, today, most Christians view Lent as a season and Easter as a day, which is ironic because 2,000 years ago, or 1,600 years ago at this point, Uh, Christians back then emphasized the season of Easter, which is 50 days of partying, and Lent was like a minor precursor to that. So unfortunately, Christians have flipped that, and we've said, well, Lent, repentance, and penance is like the most important thing, whereas early Christians were like, no, no, the party, the party's the most important thing. Now, a few years later, we added the season of Advent, sometime around the fourth century, which is a season of anticipation And shortly after that, the earliest writings we have are of the day of Christmas. Well, except it's 12 days of Christmas that Christians celebrated. Now, this is essentially the liturgical calendar. And this is a six-month guided seasons or guided year, essentially, that tells the story of the life of Christ. Christ. There's the anticipation, the birth, the realization or beginning of his ministry and epiphany. There's Lent, which is the anticipation of death or uncertainty. And then Easter, the celebration, and then the great sending out that is Pentecost. And while most Christians today think that Christians a long time ago understood Jesus through the Bible, the fact is, for 1,400 years, this is how Christians experienced the story of Jesus. This is how Christians lived through it. And while they heard stories at church and gatherings, and while they talked about those stories frequently, it was often them living the story of Christ out every year in these seasons. And the Bible didn't take a central focus until technology changed our theology. Namely, around the 15th century, Johannes Gutenberg developed the printing press, and all of a sudden, everyone could own a Bible, something that was not possible at all before this. And this deeply impacted theology in the way that we did church, specifically the Catholic church. Now, the Reformation happened around 1517, largely because they could spread ideas with the printing press that they couldn't spread before. This is where Protestant Christians separated off from the Catholic church and started forming their own churches. Now, while this is often viewed as a negative thing for the Catholic Church, there was also some very positive things that happened for the Catholics during this time. Specifically, they started looking around and saying, like, well, if we have this printing press, we can now share a lot of information with a lot of different people really quickly. And so in 1570, they released a Missale Romanum, which serves as the first lectionary or guided reading where every year they would try to suggest what readings people should be reading, 
in order to celebrate the seasons of the Christian calendar more fully. This went on for about 400 years until we arrived in the 1960s at a very important theological moment in world history, Vatican II, which took place at St. Peter's Basilica. Now, most Christians, or excuse me, most Protestant Christians don't know about Vatican II, but even though this took place in the Catholic Church, this deeply impacts the way that Protestant Christians practice Christianity as well. Because during Vatican II, there was all these reforms that were designed to make the religion and practice of Christianity much more accessible to a wider number of people. In this conversation, they commissioned a group from Vatican II to start writing a lectionary. And a lectionary is a list or book of portions of the Bible to be read at each church service. And while I got this definition from the dictionary, I would add, in order to correspond with the liturgical calendar, the Christian seasons that Christians could celebrate together. So all of a sudden, the Catholic Church said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have everybody reading the same passage of Scripture across the globe in an act of global unity. And during this time, they introduced this in 1969, they had all of these seasons in place, they'd all been around for over a thousand years, and they said, hey, for the first time in a millennium, we're going to introduce a brand new season. It's called Ordinary Time. And it came along in 1969. It's the latest innovation of the church, right? And Ordinary Time is the season between the end of Pentecost and the beginning of Advent. In other words, they said, hey, we've got this six-month kind of, kind of calendar. What happens in the six months in between? They wrote the lectionary to guide us through ordinary time. And as we are guided through ordinary time, they are saying all of these different things about what should be happening, and they assign this as a brand new season, even though they hadn't added a season in over 1,000 years. Now, I know what you're thinking at this point. You're thinking to yourself, wait a second, is paradox a Catholic church? No, we're not. Love my Catholic brothers, sisters, and friends. I, the question then becomes, how on earth did the season of ordinary time get from the Vatican to paradox here in Redlands, right? Well, to answer that question, you have to understand that when this lectionary was made, it was a global unity like, unlike the Catholic Church had ever seen before. And the Protestants felt left out by this. To which I assume the Catholics looked at us Protestants and said, oh, you feel left out? Why'd you leave in the first place, bro? <laughs> and so they said, well, why don't we have a lectionary? So a few years later, in 1978 in Washington, D.C., 13 different denominations from Protestants came together. They formed a coalition. This is their name. They came up with the Consultation on Common Text, which might be the most boring name in the history of humanity. <laughs> They came up with something, they commissioned a group, and five years later, they released the Common Lectionary, a guide for Protestants to celebrate the seasons and also make sure that they were reading and preaching on the same passages around the globe. They spent some time with it, and then after five years, they released the revised Common Lectionary, which is still in use today. Now, if you go and look at how many churches use this revised Common Lectionary, there are quite a few. Now, while you may say to yourself, uh-oh, my remote is malfunctioning, you're going to find out I'm not a very good speaker without my remote. This is the first time this has happened. I think it's because I'm wearing shorts and God is upset with me. <laughs> Whew, okay, Arthur, 
give us one second. Let's go back. This is a spoiler right here. Uh, let's go back to 1978 in Washington, D.C., shall we? Give Arthur a second here. Arthur does such a great job. Okay, let's see. This remote is going to die. This is the first time this has happened. So I'm in new territory. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, let's give it a shot. Arthur, we've spent a few years together. Let's see if we can do this. All right. So there are a lot of churches that use the Revised Common Lectionary. And if you look at this, these are not just individual churches. These are whole denominations. And it goes from Australia to Canada to Ireland to the Philippines to Korea to Venezuela to Sweden. And when you consider how new the Common Lectionary is, it's quite remarkable just how widespread it is. It's not like there's a pope of the Protestant church that says, you all will do this from now on, right? Instead, since 1983, all of these denominations have said, yeah, we're going to use this. In an act of global unity, we're going to preach on the same texts every week. And yes, there are four different texts, but each of those four different texts will be read in each church service across the globe. This is so prevalent that it's reached Redlands, California, and I meet with a group of seven other pastors, excuse me, six others pastors, and recently we went to Caprice here in Redlands. Now, these, these pastors represent several denominations, including the United Methodist Church, uh, the Episcopalian Church, the Lutheran Church, uh, the American Baptist Church, the United Church of Christ, and Paradox Church. I don't know how we got invited to the party, but we did. Oh, hey, does this work now? Yeah, all right, great job, tech team. I'm so much less nervous now. This is so good. <laughs> so I was hanging, I've been hanging out with this group for a couple years now, and they are very kind to invite me and to us to participate. When, about, when this picture was taken last year, um, all of these churches followed the lectionary except for Paradox. And that started to change when Kim Krogstad, who is here, she retired recently from First Lutheran, uh, not too far from here, um, she heard that we were doing a nine-year sermon series and it was wrapping up, and she said, Craig, you got to do the lectionary, and you've got to make sure that you do the liturgical calendar. And I didn't think much of it until my professor from La Sierra, Maury Jackson, who does not know Kim Croxeth, said, Craig, you've got to do the lectionary and the liturgical calendar. It is an act of global unity. You will feel part of a bigger church. You'll tap in traditions that are much older than Paradox Church as it is, and a church that is much wider than your reach in Redlands. And so we listened to them, and I started meeting with them and talking with them about what it would mean, and we started going through the seasons. And I have to tell you, I started thinking about this and saying, okay, this could work, this might work, and we talked with elders, but the thing that kept coming up was I said, six months of a season called ordinary time? That sounds so boring. And they responded by saying, you've got to think of this not as like seven seasons in a row, Craig, but instead you've got to think about it as six seasons together and one season that's separate. And ordinary time is just as long as the six seasons at the top there. And when you look at the time that's spent there, it's November, or excuse me, December to May is Advent to Pentecost, and ordinary time is June to November. So it's like a counterbalance because it's supposed to be half of a calendar year. And the way that Maury described this to me is that the six seasons on top there, they're the story of Jesus Christ. And the six months that we are just entering into now in ordinary time, it is the story of the people of God. 
And so there is this balance that happens, and this idea that ordinary time is like a singular event or a singular person, it doesn't really work that way. Instead, it's much more communal, and it's much more of like, hey, you've heard the story of Jesus Christ. How is it that it's going to impact your life, and how do you live in a way that makes sense today? The way that Kim described it to me is she said, like, I like to think of ordinary time as discipleship 101. And let me tell you, she said, with the lectionary, the teachings of Jesus, Jesus start off real easy, and they get harder and harder with each passing week. So I point all of this out because we are going through the lectionary. We're going through the liturgical calendar. We started with Advent. This is the first weekend in ordinary time, and we have three writings or three readings that were assigned to us by this common lectionary. And each of these readings have something in common. They are all showing us what ordinary time is. Essentially, God or the person in charge does something that's generous and magnificent. And then there is this like moment, a threshold moment, where all of a sudden the question becomes, so what are you going to do because of this? Let's go back to the reading in Genesis. Here we read about creation. And if you read all of Genesis 1, you hear about how God created everything. There's celestial bodies, and there's sky, and there's trees, and there's animals. And we read about all of this creation, and it all comes to this moment at the end of the first chapter where God creates humanity. And God's first words to humanity are this, bear fruit, increase your numbers, and fill the earth, and be responsible for it. Watch over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things on the earth. Look, God says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth and every tree whose fruit carries its seed inside itself. They will be your food and all, to all the animals of the earth and the birds of the air and things that crawl on the ground. Everything that has a living soul in it, I give all the green plants for food. And then the narrator says, and so it was. And God looked at all of this creation and proclaimed that this was good. Very good. Now, when I read that in Genesis 1, I'm like, really? Every seed is a gift from God? Every seed? And as I was writing this, I was in my front yard sitting on my porch, and I was like, let's see what the first three things that I can take a picture of that are interesting. And the first thing I came across was bricks. And while these bricks may not look like anything, these bricks are made from materials of the earth that were given to us by a force that we don't fully understand. Not only that, but I turned to my left and a rose was in bloom. And I was like, this is quite intricate here. And then I went across my lawn to a tree that's in the front yard. This tree is walked by by, you know, I don't know, 30 people a day. Nobody pays attention to it, but if you look closely, there are all these textures and interwoven ideas and movement that happens within just the bark of the tree. And what this is trying to get us to see is that every seed, even a seed that plants a tree like this, is a gift from God, even though we see it as an ordinary tree. In other words, this season is moving us to realize that every ordinary thing around us is an extraordinary gift from God to us. Amen. And the threshold moment is, so what will you do in this, with this magnificent generosity? What will you do with it? Because God's like, here's the world. Do something with it. Be responsible, whatever that means to you. This was captured in a novel. I have not read this novel, but a friend told me about the thesis, and I just fell in love with the thesis. It's on my to-read list. It won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago. It's called The Overstory by Richard Powers. 
The thesis of the book, according to my friend, is this. What you make from a tree should be at least as miraculous as what you cut down. That's tapping into the idea that everything that's ordinary around us is a gift. So what will you do with it? Cut it down and not think about it? Or will you have reverence and create something that is borderline miraculous? Now, 46 books of the Bible later, we come across our second reading. It takes place in Corinth, which is in Greece today. Paul is writing a letter, and in this letter, it's obvious that he has been hurt by the Corinthians, and the Corinthians feel hurt by him. He is trying to write an apology in the best way that Paul can. He's not great at it, but you got to give him credit for trying. And he's writing this letter to the Corinthians after he feels hurt by them, they felt hurt by him, and he writes about generosity and God's gifts. And in the last few verses, he says these things, and now, sisters and brothers, I must say goodbye. Mend your ways, encourage one another, live in harmony and peace, and that the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, what Paul is saying, if you look at the whole letter, is he's saying, like, we have been the recipients of an extraordinary gift, which is the life of Jesus Christ. And every day we live in the, life, in the life that we have after the life of Christ is a gift that is hard for us to comprehend just how generous it is. In other words, he's saying every ordinary day we live overflows with the extraordinary love of God. And he ends this letter by saying, goodbye, my friends. You have been loved extravagantly. So what will you do with this magnificent love? And when he says this thing, his final words are, let's work to make amends because we have been loved and forgiven before us. A few years before this book was written, we come across the reading in Matthew, which takes place on the Mount of Olives, which looks like this today if you visit Jerusalem. Now, it's here that Jesus is about to go ascend into heaven to say goodbye in this physical form for what we know to be the rest of history. So it's up here that he ascends into heaven promises to come back, and he says on his way out, all authority has been given to me both in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the only begotten. Teach each of them to carry out everything I commanded you and know that I am with you always, even with you until the end of the world. Now, it's here that if you've been paying attention to Matthew's gospel, you know that this is a bookend because Matthew's gospel begins with a very similar promise where Matthew starts talking about the life of Jesus by saying, all this happened to fulfill what God has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth, and the child will be named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So in other words, Matthew realizes that this whole story of Jesus is tapping into something that people testified before, which was that God is already with us. And Jesus leaves the story by saying, I will be with you wherever you go. And if you think about that, you start to say to yourself, everywhere I go? Because I've been to some pretty remote places, like Montana, right? (laughs) And what this story is, is that every ordinary place we go comes with the extraordinary presence of God. You can't go anywhere that God is not already there. This presence is a gift from God. And the question becomes, so what will you do with this magnificent presence? And each of these stories represents a threshold moment where there's this gift that is given, people are received the gift, and the question becomes, 
What is it that you will do? And it begins with the recognition that all of this is a gift given freely and lovingly by God. So then what will you do with it? Now, godless religion will make you feel guilty about this gift. Godless religion will say, and God wants you to pay God back. And he'll be like, oh my gosh, we're doing this again? This is a gift given freely and lovingly by God. This is not a gift that has strings attached to it. And when we look at the story of Jesus Christ and the story of the people of God, another way to look at this is, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about it for six months. And during the next six months, after this threshold moment, after we've received the most elaborate gift, we then start asking ourselves questions about how do we live going forward? And the question becomes, or the thrust of this whole season becomes, how then do we participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ today? Because this is a participatory experience. It's not an obligation to live through. Now, you may hear these stories and be like, I could participate in a gospel like that with creation or people flying off to heaven or hearing the Apostle Paul apologize. I could, I could participate in any of that and see God. The problem is God doesn't work that way today, to which I would say, I understand what you're saying. I will give you these are sensational stories. We love sensational stories where miracles happen, where God intervenes with a mighty hand, where things just get blown away and you're like, that is not how it was supposed to be, but God showed up and wow, everything worked out. These are all sensational stories and you may not have stories like that and that's okay. We love the sensational, don't we? We love people who can sing better than us, people like Beyonce, right? Beyonce can sing better than just about everybody else and we think to ourselves, you know, I could really participate in the gospel if I could sing as well as Beyonce does, right? Imagine if I had that platform, I would be just telling people about God, I would be working so hard, all of these things. I just wish I was a little bit more sensational in order to more fully participate in the gospel. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but this guy is the best basketball player in the world, and he, Nikola Jokic, it's just unbelievable watching him play. They have this idea that if we could just play basketball better or play sports better, that we could ultimately reach more people or more fully participate in what this world has to offer. That's a sensational perspective on life. One of my favorite comedians is a woman named Ali Wong, and we often think to ourselves, if I could just be a little funnier like Ali Wong and tell stories and get people to laugh and have a platform and be recognized, then I would be able to be more fully engaged in life, right? And I want to tell you something. All three of these stories are great stories. There's nothing wrong with these stories. I love all three of these people. But I have good news for the rest of us. You do not need to do anything sensational to be a good disciple of God. And I want you to know this is something I struggle with on a personal level in the idea that I can only be a good disciple of God if I do something that is newsworthy, right? Another way of thinking about this is you do not need to do anything sensational in order to participate in the gospel. This is not something that only happens when you're on the mountaintop kind of experiences, right? And while we think about great singers and great athletes and great comedians and entertainers, and we think about these other stories that happen in the Bible of miracles, the fact is the gospel is, happens in these moments 
But these moments are fewer and further between, aren't they? Instead, when we look at our own lives, we spend a lot of time with our families in some shape or form. We spend a lot of time going to cubicles and offices. We spend a lot of time sitting around the city of Redlands or wherever it is you are on the live stream. And the fact is that this is what a lot more of our lives look like than selling out theaters across the country, right? And one day, I may preach to some really famous people. Uh, I don't know what I would say to them because I'd be like, it seems like we struggle with different things. But the thing that we have to make peace with here is that the majority of your life and my life would be filled with ordinary days. That's the majority. And if something sensational happens in your life, great. Celebrate it, embrace it, savor it. But we live mostly ordinary days. And the good news of Jesus is that the gospel of Jesus Christ thrives in the ordinary. It is a message that is for every day, not just for the sensational moments. And so this morning, we got involved in our community. We went on a hunger walk. Now, did we solve world hunger? No. Do we partner with an organization that is working to make sure that there's no one who goes hungry in the community of Redlands? Yes. Why did we do that? Because we have received so much that we want to make sure that others have enough to eat. And Redlands Family Service Association is a great organization. And when they say we're having a big event on Saturday morning to help feed those who are hungry, it's worth starting church at a later hour because it reminds us of what we're here to do, particularly during the season of ordinary time. Sometimes it looks like just signing up for a walk and walking around and remind yourself, hey, we've always got to take care of those who are hungry. And the question that arises from events like this, that are the ordinary events that happen in your local community is, how do I, how do you participate in the extraordinary gospel of Christ in our ordinary lives? This is the question of ordinary time. And over the next six months, we're going to be talking about this. And today, it looked like participating in a hunger walk. Tomorrow, it will be something different. But whatever it is that you do, do not be tempted to think, oh, if I was just a bigger deal, then I would fully understand God. The gospel of Jesus Christ thrives in the ordinary. My friends, may you participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ and may you feel no obligation instead. May you feed those who are hungry and help others who are in need. May you, you see the generosity of God all around you. And may you experience the extraordinary God in your ordinary days. Amen. Amen.